downloading today's UW Alumni Voices podcast. I'm your host, Josh Van Campen, and today we're going live into the United Kingdom with scientist at Immunicorp, Rachel Patterson. Rachel, welcome. Thank you very much, Josh. So we're having a bit of a quick chat before, I guess, you know, we're all going through, the whole entire world's going through the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you just give us a bit of a quick of a, bit of an update in how everything's going at the United Kingdom? Because we do have quite a lot of UW graduates over there. Yeah, well, it's all been a bit of a blur, to be honest. Um, the UK, it's been about two months now since the lockdown started, and it's pretty scary, to be honest. There's been a lot of cases, and we're up over 40,000 deaths now. So wow. the UK has been pre- pretty hard hit. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, it's, it's an interesting time, and it's so sad to, you know, just hear that pure number of 40,000 deaths. It's uh, one of those things where, you know, we're here in Australia, we're so so far from it, we're, we're quite lucky that we haven't been impacted, especially us here, here in Perth, but it's always good to get a bit of a reminder of, you know, how the rest of the world's being impacted, but uh, get onto your, your role, because you're a scientist at Immunicore, a pioneering clinical stage T-cell receptor biotechnology company working to develop and commercialise a new generation of transformative medicines to address unmet needs in cancer, infection, autoimmune disease. You're part of the Infectious Diseases Unit, uh, which is currently working on immune-based treatments for hepatitis B, HIV, and tuberculosis. Uh, How has your work been affected by COVID-19? Well, it's been a lot more working from home, that's for sure. Um, Usually, I'd be going into the lab every day doing experiments, but that hasn't been happening Um, Initially, when the lockdown started, I was writing a scientific paper, so that was easy to do from home. But then since then, I've started going back into the lab one or two days a week uh, because we're trying to minimise the the number of people that are in at any one time. Uh, So that's been challenging. It's taken a lot of prioritising. But, yeah, I often go in just for a few hours uh, and then work from home for the rest of the day. Uh, and there's been a lot of changes actually in the workplace. Um, we have to sign in and out of the buildings. We wear face masks the whole time that we're at work. Uh, there's all hand sanitizer stations all around the company. Um, and of course, there's the physical distancing. So there's some spaces that only one or two people can be in at the same time so that we can keep two meters apart. Um, but most people are working from home as much as they can. How hard is it being a scientist doing this work from home? Well, to be honest, there's a lot of my job that I literally just can't do from home. Um, But I can try to minimise the amount of time that I need to be in the lab to keep the experiments running. You know, you've clearly adapted to to change, but not only work, but how have you adapted in your day-to-day life? Uh, day-to-day life well the biggest thing for me really is the travel um, as many people have been affected by the travel restrictions um, yeah just not being able to go where you want when you want and staying at home a lot only going to the shops when you really need to go and get something um, and then going back to Australia um, I don't know when that's going to happen but just having lots of contact with family and friends back home. So lots of Skyping and text messages and Zooms and videos. So 
that's been a change in day-to-day life. There's been actually a lot more communication than before. So in some ways it's been a catalyst for, um, yeah, talking lots. So do, do you think this has, oddly enough, brought you closer together with your family and friends? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's been even some old friends that I hadn't spoken with for years that from all over the world, you know, people that I used to live in Perth and now they live in Germany or wherever, um, who got back in touch. So it's really nice to reconnect with some people as well. How hard has it been to not travel? Because that is one of the the beauties of living in the UK. You are so close to so many countries, unlike in Australia, where we have to travel hours just to to visit another city in our own country. So has that been tough for you? Because were there any travel plans you had to cancel? Oh, yeah, there's heaps of travel plans. I'm supposed to be flying to Australia next week, actually. Oh, no. Um, It's my stepmom's 60th birthday. We had this big family trip to Bali booked. That's all off. I've got a couple of friends' weddings that were cancelled. But I say cancelled, but most of these things are being postponed. We're fortunate enough that we're probably going to be able to do most of these things in the future. Mm. It might be next year or it might be I might be able to make it home for Christmas. It's just at the moment the timing is really unclear. So that that's the tricky thing at the moment is that it's very unclear when we might be able to do some of these things and see these people. How have you been able to manage your you know, your mental health? Because mental health has been a really big topic of discussion for people working from home. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head there with the uncertainty. You know, being able to manage that uncertainty isn't necessarily easy for people. So how have you been able to manage your, your mental health through this time? Well, the sunshine in the UK at the moment has definitely helped because I tell you what, <laughs> If this were happening in the middle of a dark, grey, cold UK winter, it would be a lot harder. I do find getting some sunshine, getting some fresh air and kind of making some time um, to just go out and um, relax a little bit. We are allowed to go outside for walks and daily exercise. So I think making sure you keep that as part of your routine, even when everything else is all... Um, different to usual, um, yeah, that definitely helps with my headspace. Now let's talk about your career because uh, um, did you always want to pursue a career in medical research? I don't, I don't think so. When I, when I was in high school, there were lots of different things that I was considering. Uh, I really enjoyed science and maths and I had lots of great teachers. Uh, so they encouraged me in many different subjects and I considered a lot of potential career paths. I don't think it was until about year 11 and 12 that I really started thinking seriously about medical research. Uh, That was when we got given all the the handbooks from the different universities. Uh, And I remember looking at the one from UWA and they had this course, I think it was called Advanced Science at the time. And it's what the new Bachelor of Philosophy course at UWA is based on. And essentially it involved different research projects every year, as well as an overseas research placement and this honours project at the end. And it just sounded really exciting to me. And I think that was the point where I decided I wanted to try medical research. I had considered ophthalmology, but at the time you couldn't study ophthalmology in Western Australia. You had to go over East. 
and I got funding from the Fogarty Foundation to go to UWA. So that was another factor in deciding that I wanted to do this, this course at UWA. Were you ever thinking about going over east? Because that is, it's been a recent trend for a lot of WA high school students to go to you know, Sydney and, and Melbourne. Was that ever a thought for you? Yeah, it definitely was. And I, I did apply for this ophthalmology course in Melbourne. Uh, so I would have been heading over there as probably an 18-year-old. I took a gap year. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. It, it would have been a big move at 18, but it would have had um, lots of opportunities and the chance to to get that independence a little bit earlier, I guess. Yeah, I always feel like the, the world's a lot flatter than what it used to be. So, you know, it doesn't seem as outrageous as it might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago for someone from Perth to, to go over the East to study. Because I know from my end, I didn't know anybody that did that. Yeah, well, and I grew up down south. So I'm from Busso and um, even just moving to Perth. For me, moving to Perth was huge because <laughs> um, the, there's so much going on um, in the city compared to down south. But then Melbourne is a whole different ball game. Um, and now I just want to go go back and visit Busso because it's so chilled <laughs> and just relax. And hey, Busso is one of the most beautiful places on on the planet. I think you can agree that you know you you've been like me, you've been all over the world, and yet it's no place like home. No place like home. Now, do you have a passion for what you do in the research you do, and do you need to have a passion for what you do? Oh, absolutely. I think um, I don't know how long you could stay in science and research if you didn't have a passion for it because there's huge highs but there's huge lows and it can be really challenging most of the time science doesn't go as planned which is one of the reasons we have to do it because we find out things we didn't expect Um, but when you have projects that just don't work you really need to be passionate to to keep that going and to keep working on it so where did the passion come from uh For me, lots of different places, I think. Uh, The teachers, I had fantastic teachers uh, who really kind of stoked my curiosity uh, in science and maths in particular, Um, but also family members. I've got family that are interested in, but also work in different areas of science and technology. Uh, And personally, I'm just very... uh, curious and I like learning and problem solving and once again at school I think that problem solving was really nurtured at school Uh, and then just learning about and reading about scientific discoveries and and how they've changed the world and for me I thought medical research would be a great way to help people I think if you can improve somebody's health you not only potentially save their life or improve their life from a health perspective, but it can also have other impacts uh, such as through education. If someone is healthy, then they've got the maximum chance of getting the most out of their, their education and their schooling. Now, before you talked about that, you know, these are clearly like the highs of what you do in regards to research and science, but you also talked about the lows. Can you give an example of some of the lows you've experienced in your career? Well, the PhD definitely had some, some very tough, long lows. Um, Just spending years working on the same project, trying to get it to work. Uh, And it's not that you never make any progress over those three years, 
but it's just so slow or you have to find different ways around hurdles that you come across. Um, so my PhD was four years, well, it ended up being about four and a half years. And most of the results that I got, I got in the last six months being in the lab. And then I wrote my thesis in, a, in about two or three months. So if you think that the first three years, I was just trying to get everything working so that then I could do the critical experiments to get the results. Um, yeah. Is there moments through a ch- is there moments through a PhD where you you simply just want to quit and you think this is just too hard? I didn't think about quitting, but at some point toward in my final year, I think it was, I remember for the first time actually doubting whether or not I would be able to to finish the experiments to get it to work. So I remember when that crossed my mind. I never thought about um, quitting it, but I did have doubts. Yeah. Did you have to like when you have those doubts? Who who do you talk to? Who do you, who do you lean on in times like that? Family, friends. I guess it's different for everyone. I had some colleagues, um, so course mates who were also doing the same. Um, PhD at the same time um, and we went to college together and there was one friend in particular um, I leaned on her a lot and I remember her saying you know it's just a PhD it's not worth losing too much sleep over and just kind of snap out of it you know like you have to put lots of time and energy into it but it's not the be all and end all now, a few weeks ago, I interviewed a, a fellow UW grad who's currently doing her PhD, and she talked about when you're doing a PhD, people kind of put yourself put you on a pedestal. Did you ever have that with any of your family and friends that kind of were putting you on a pedestal because you're like, oh, wow, Rachel's doing a PhD? I don't think so. Um, I mean, my family and friends are very supportive of me and encouraging, and um, they tell me that they're proud of me and all this kind of stuff, but that's not a one way road. I'm very proud of my family and friends for all the amazing things they do. And I'm just so grateful for all of the people that helped me along the way so that I was in a position that I could um, apply for PhDs and and get funding and move overseas because so many people um, don't have the opportunity to to do that. So um, yeah. Now, do your family and friends have a certain perception about your role today as a medical researcher, like an assumption of what you do on a daily basis? Like there's Rachel (laughs) in the white lab coat. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if they think that I wear a hazmat suit or like in the (laughs) movies working on really dangerous diseases. Um, My mum probably has the best idea what I do because I speak the most with her. Um, But I actually don't know what what most of my friends and family think I do on a day-to-day basis. It's probably not as exciting as what they think it is. Did you have a perception when you were, you know, at UWA as well as Oxford of thinking of what your career would look like? I'm not sure. It's so long ago now, Josh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's not that that long ago, mate. (laughs) It it is. It really is. Um, I remember towards the end of my studies, that's when I started thinking about um, working or at least continuing my studies overseas. Uh, And doing the research project in Sweden 
definitely gave me an, an insight into what that might look like moving overseas and meeting lots of new people and kind of having to, to start from scratch in that sense. Um, but I didn't, at that stage, I didn't really have an idea of what it might look like to work in a, a biotech company, for instance, because it has been quite different um, working in industry compared to, to the research that I'd done and experienced at university. Now let's talk about some of the influences for you, because when you're in Perth at UW, you stayed at St. George's College, you played for Claremont Tigers Football Club, you know, you're part of the Fogarty Foundation. So how were those experiences influential into who you are today? Yeah, those are three big ones, um, hugely influential for me. Um, so I lived at St. George's for four years. The whole time I was at UWA studying, I was at St. George's. So I guess in that way, it was really a constant. It gave me security and consistency, uh, but it was also very vibrant and exciting. I met lots of interesting people at St. George's, made really good friends, and it was just a really engaging community to be a part of. There was always heaps going on extracurricular stuff like music and inter-college sports and you could never be bored at college so in that sense um, it's a little bit similar to the Oxbridge collegiate system in the UK so St George's gave me a bit of a taste of of what life was going to be like in Oxford and then with the Fogarty Foundation there was quite a lot of overlap with St George's quite a few of the other scholars also lived at St. George's and there were always lots of inspired, inspiring projects. Um, like Teach, Learn, Grow was one of the projects that um, a Fogarty scholar from St. George's, Dave Sherwood, he started that. So getting involved in projects like that was really rewarding um, and had a huge influence. And then just on top of that, the, the Fogarty Foundation, a massive amount of financial support through my undergraduate degree uh, and then there's getting to know the other scholars and they would always run really interesting speaker programs so you could go to lots of um, different talks and debates and um, as far as I can tell the the Fogarty Foundation has continued to grow and thrive since then so so that's brilliant. How important was that financial support like do you look back thinking I may not have been able to study at UWA or even go to university without that support. It would have been a very different story. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I took a gap year after high school and I worked the first part of that gap year to save money to go traveling. Um, and then I went on this big trip um, with a couple of friends from school and, you know, spent all the money that I had saved on this trip. But if I didn't have the funding from the Fogarty Foundation, first of all, I probably wouldn't have been able to afford the trip and I would have had to work that whole year and then continued to work part-time during my undergraduate degree. Um, in the end, I, I worked the summer holidays. I, I would go and work on, on the wheat bins at CBH out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. Um, but I didn't have to have a part-time job during my studies, like during the year. So that meant that I had more time for footy and extracurricular stuff that I just wouldn't have had the time for if I'd had to have a part-time job to support my studies. Now, let's talk about, you'd mentioned footy there. Now, can you share with everyone what the footy community is like there in the UK and what you did to help start up, I guess, expanding the game of AFL over there in the UK? Oh, yeah, well... 
the the game of Aussie rules has actually been in the UK for more than a hundred years, which I had no idea until I, I looked into it. And um, the Oxford versus Cambridge men's varsity match has been going since the early 1900s. It's the oldest Aussie rules rivalry outside of Australia. Um, and they've played almost every year except during the, the world wars. Um, but that when I came to Oxford, there wasn't a women's team. So um, I got in touch with the guys and, and asked them if I could come down and train with them. And, and they were really excited and, and helped me to start a women's team. So we've had an Oxford women's team for a few years now, and we play against quite a few other clubs uh, throughout the UK. There's teams all across the UK now, actually. Um, and they've got a university league that includes teams from South Wales, Birmingham, Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, and they play kind of round robins against each other. Um, and then there's the big Oxford versus Cambridge varsity match, which um, this year it was actually played two days before the, the government shut down, the lockdown started. So that was really good timing. And Oxford women, I don't play anymore, but I'm very happy to go along and cheer. And Oxford women won their first varsity match, which was super exciting. Is it not only exciting, but are you proud of what you helped create there? I am proud. And I also just feel really privileged because I love footy and I just want everybody who enjoys the sport to be able to try it and give it a go. And to, so to see it growing, I just feel, yeah, really grateful. And whenever you hear of someone from Perth moving to the UK, you're already on to them going, Hey, Oxford need you. Oh, not even Perth, just anywhere, anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I I was actually living in a share house um, in Oxford for most of my PhD and I shared with people from the US and Canada and Germany and Australia and all pretty much the, all of the women in the house ended up on, on slash captains. We had three captains of the Oxford women's footy team came from, from that house. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm roping in anyone, anyone that I can. Now, you know, you, you shared some really great memories of your time there at UWA. Is there one memory of your time there that sticks out more than them all? Oh, I mean, there are quite a few, but I would have to say that the one that sticks out the most is going way back to the very beginning, being an absolutely petrified first year student, going into my first lecture in the massive Octagon Theatre or with no idea what I was in for. Um, So that's probably the one that stands out the most, but um, I have lots of really fun and fantastic memories from the university games I got addicted to university games in my first year and I went back every single year um, on the women's footy team. So there's so many memories from uni games that I can't possibly pick one out. But um, the, in, in the first year that we went, we, it was the first time they'd had women's footy and obviously UWA just kind of cobbled this team together of mainly people that had never played before. Um, and we won a bronze medal and I must say it was all downhill from there. (laughs) The next few years, we, we didn't manage to win many games, but we always had a lot of fun. 
I can attest to that. Every team, or especially the women's footy, always seem to have a lot of fun at, at the uni games. But I want to get into your time there at Oxford, which we've kind of touched on there, because you attended Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. How important was the opportunity to study overseas and how important was it to your career path? Yeah, I think, like we've touched on before about um, the potential of moving to Melbourne or or going earlier, I think moving overseas provides challenges and opportunities that you can't really recreate a lot of the time in your home country or your home um, state because it, it takes you away from the support that you maybe take for granted. Um, so you have to become independent and make new connections and develop new skills. And I also found being a Rhodes Scholar and in, in, in Oxford, often being surrounded by opinions and experiences and backgrounds that are very diverse and different from my own, mm. that that was a really... Um, eye-opening experience. When did uh, becoming a Rhodes Scholar be part of your career plan? <laughs> I don't think it was ever part of my career plan. I don't <laughs> think becoming a Rhodes Scholar is a sensible, sensible thing to have <laughs> as part of your career plan. But it's definitely worth a shot. It's worth applying for um, or, or twice. I actually applied twice, two years in a row, and managed to get it on the second time. So, um, and... The Rhodes experience has been massive. Um, the people that I've met through Rhodes and just the opportunities that I've had studying in Oxford and and it's it's similar with the Fogarty Foundation providing um, opportunities to go to talks and debates and hear from experts in the field that you would never get access to um, if not for um, being part of that. That community. Were you in, yeah, were you encouraged to apply? Did uh, you know fellow classmate tell you about it? How does that process begin? I think it was either someone from UWA or someone from college um, recommended that I apply for it. I, I didn't know about the road scholarships until my last year or two of uni, um, when I started looking at next steps and applying for different scholarships and um, PhDs or further study. And I don't remember who exactly it was. It might have been John Inverarity from St. George's. He was pretty keen that um, I should apply for this scholarship and he supported my application. He even um, helped me. Um, he organised a mock interview and, and really um, encouraged me to put lots of time and effort into this application, which obviously paid off. Well, I mean, John Inverity, you know, one of the great UWA graduates and, you know, former Australian cricket selector and WA cricket great. I mean, how important has is it, how important is it to have people like him and fellow alumni there to, to lean on during times like that? Oh, it's huge. It, it can completely change the trajectory and open doors that you might not have even known the door was there. Mm. Uh, so having people like that, as part of your world is huge. Yeah. And for me, it has been huge the whole way through. I've had people like that the whole way through my life. So I feel very fortunate and grateful um, for that. Now you've been, you know, you've been really successful in a short period of time. I'm curious, do you have a particular learning style that has helped you become so successful? Uh, I don't know if this counts as a learning style, but 
I've always really valued getting enough sleep. That is really important for me to, I can't function on no sleep. Um, but other than that, I, I'm definitely a note taker. Uh, when I'm learning, I, I like taking notes and making a summary so that I can flick back to things later because I'm not one of these people that can just remember every little thing. Uh, so it's good to have something to go back to and um, remember all the things that you've learned. Now, we talked at the start about the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, how difficult has it been for you living overseas away from your family and friends in, in Perth during this time? Oh, it's definitely had its moments. Um, most of the time it's fine, but I do have moments when I get homesick and I really wish that I could just jump on a plane and come back. And my mum says she's been uh, clearing out a space in the shed just in case, <laughs> just in case <laughs> I want to quarantine there for a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, technology has helped me to stay really well connected. And I've been speaking more with a lot of people, a lot of friends and family back home and all over the world. I've actually been more connected with them now than I was previously. And I also have a really great support network over here now. I've been living in the UK. It's going to be coming up eight years. So I've got lots of really good friends over here that I can um, actually see in person once the lockdown is, is up. Um, yeah. Do you, so, do, you, do you ever sometimes think about, oh, imagine if technology wasn't that good in 2020, like how we'd cope? Oh, yeah. It, it would be really difficult. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure how my mom would go because she, <laughs> we, we have quite um, regular calls. And so if she was having to write a letter every, every day or every week um, and I wasn't replying for months, that might be a bit tough. Um, but no, to be, to be serious, when people first started um, doing the Oxford, the, like moving from Australia to study at Oxford, they had to go on a ship. And most of them wouldn't come back at all until they finished their studies. It was a very different life. And yeah, I guess they occasionally got to call home or, but it was, I think we take for granted now how we can just pick up the phone or open the iPad and, and see someone's face on the other side within seconds. It's, it's unbelievable. With, with, with that story, everyone, you know, having to, to get on that ship to, to go to Oxford, are stories like that shared amongst the scholars? Yeah, I think, and especially if you uh, kind of look for it or ask people, talk to people, go to events, they have quite a few events every year where they get back scholars across generations. And you might be at a dinner sitting next to a South African scholar that was in Oxford in the 70s. So you can get all sorts of really interesting stories. Yeah. That's really good. Cool. Now, I'm curious, has the Oxford Footy Club been active during the pandemic? No. Well, actually, it's the off-season right now, thankfully. Um, the, the varsity match that I was talking about just before the lockdown, that would have been one of the last matches of the season anyway. Uh, so it was good to, to finish the season with that. Uh, and then there would have been some kind of European footy trip in the summer that's cancelled. Um, but the next season won't actually start back up again until September, October. So hopefully contact sports are back up and running by then. Uh, 
but yeah, I think there's been a lot of chat and some online movie nights and stuff from the footy club, but no, no physical. Well, I don't know if, if people are, are training themselves going for a kick in the park, but no, we're not allowed to do any, any training or anything at, at the moment. Do you keep tabs on what's happening at Claremont footy club as well? Cause you know, recently I guess the government here in WA have allowed, you know, 20 people can train together. And I know the UWA footy club were pretty excited there on social media, sharing them training at McGilver Oval the other night. Oh really? No, I, I'm definitely out of the loop with, with what's happening at Claremont. I, I get um, photos and stuff uh, on Facebook, but other than that, I'm, I'm very out of the loop. So Hopefully, Claremont will be back up and running soon. Now, last question. You know, with with the research that you, you know you, that you concentrate on with the hepatitis B, HIV, and tuberculosis, uh, what does the future hold for this research in during this pandemic? Because I guess you know you can't do as much as you, as you used to. Does this mean that everything has been? I guess the deadlines that you've had have been you know, pushed back. So, at the moment, none of the deadlines are being pushed where, well, for the priority project. So we've had to prioritise which things are the most important that we get done to make sure that we can still um, hit these deadlines. So it's been a bit of juggling and there are some things that um, will kind of be paused so that other things can keep going uh, full throttle, really, because we've got patients that, we want to help and if we're if we're delayed then we're delaying giving them a potential treatment so we don't want to delay now Rachel that's all the time we've got but if people want to learn more about your immunocore where's the best place to visit uh well they can look at immunocore.com uh or they can look on linkedin and yeah and reach out to me if you if you want to hear more Rachel, really appreciate your time. Look forward to hopefully having you home back here in, in Perth at some point, especially for your mother's sake. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks so much, Josh. It's been great. There may be less coffee catch-ups, hugs and high-fives, but we're all part of the global UWA community and have a role to play. The UWA alumni community is committed to helping our students, staff and graduates through the COVID-19 crisis. You can help by providing a donation, sending a message of support, becoming a mentor, an ambassador, providing some pro bono advice or simply checking in with a fellow graduate. Let's all do our part and help the global UWA community.